Welcome to Literally Two Cents About Content, a podcast about what it's like to write for as little as two cents per word. I'm Alex. And I'm Elizabeth. If you made like a really bad summary of this book, How to Do Nothing by, by Jenny O'Dell, you could summarize it as digital, mostly bad, need more analog, which I mean, please, please do not use that <laughs> quote in any sort of serious way because that's a absolutely horrible summary. I can imagine but people it's... just like whole cloth ripping that <laughs> quote out. <laughs> this is what he's this is is, there is like a whole twitter thing once it was like summarize some event badly or something or the movie badly and i'm blanking on some specific examples but there were some there were some pretty good ones i mean something like a star i think the original star wars was something like a a an electronic shipment goes goes awry or something (laughs) like like you would go in thinking that was what happened in the movie and in some sense that is literally true but it's not at all the essence of the movie but anyway so this book actually i found it, it's uh, i found out about it via a sub stack that i had read that i'd found via mastodon which coincidentally is, is actually discussed in this book so it's yes, a, 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 a i, I was of, so surprised because this book was written in what 20 wait let's step back what book are we talking about yeah the book <laughs> the book itself is called how to do nothing and the author is Jenny O'Dell. The subtitle is Resisting the Attention Economy. And the author is Jenny O'Dell. And it was published in 2019. 2019. So, yeah. Mastodon came out in... Mastodon was first released in 2016. But it didn't... Really nobody cared about it at all until 2022 when Twitter became... It was taken over by Elon Musk and then... A decent number of people were looking for somewhere else to go when they went to Mastodon. It was proposed as like the answer to the Twitter problem. Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, we can get into some, it's not really a huge point in the book, but it does dovetail though on something she does think is important though, that that, social media in its dominant commercialized form is pretty harmful to the way that you interface with the world, the way you sort of see things and hear things because it doesn't have any context to it. And basically it's trying to, get you into this sort of dread or frenzied state where you're always trying to create content. You're always trying to keep up with things, but then you really have no context for anything. It's all just like one big stream and it becomes very overwhelming. And as a result, you sort of lose touch with any sort of physical reality that you would need to have to really pay attention to anything, to get having more of a stable place or a, a, or I think at one point she says you, you lose the ability to want what you want or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like you sort of, you lose all this time to distraction and the things that you could have done that you didn't even realize that maybe you wanted to do, those get foreclosed because you're just becoming this cog and this attention economy machine. You're constantly refreshing. You're looking for updates. You're posting things you're into this void. And then, you know, that, of course, there's an opportunity cost to that. You don't get to experience as much of the physical world. And then the other thing, too, is that it also detracts from any sort of uh, collective action that would be necessary to solve major problems like climate change and so on, because everybody's Mm -hmm. atomized into sort of their own social media feeds. Yeah, Yeah, that was one of the things that I wrote down that kind of struck me because she she says so the quote is the information that I encounter on social media. These are my brackets that I encounter on social media lacks context, both spatially and temporally. Yeah. So you're getting the notices, especially on Twitter, right? Facebook is 
a little different because yeah. you have a little bit more context because presumably you know these people that you're yeah. interacting with on Facebook. Uh, but with Twitter, you just you have these snippets, I guess, mm-hmm. of things that you don't really have context for. Yeah, especially with what she says temporally, and the way that the Twitter news feed is organized. She's right. Like it's not. Yeah, I think the, the most recent first. There's a yeah temporally. So there's a couple things going on there. So yeah, with Twitter, I think you might be able to turn that off, but it's very hard, and I don't actually know if it even works the way you expect it. Like, it, it, and what I mean by that is, by default, you see a feed called for you, which is not chronological. It's just like the, an algorithm, which is not. Which she talks in at one point about how algorithms aren't accountable anybody and so the algorithm just picks things and throws them at you and sometimes you might see something from it might actually be quite old like it might be from from the previous day or it might just say something like person you follow or person you follow also follows this account here's one of their tweets or something like that and so so then yeah you don't really get a sense of how anything has been ordered because you know, it, it's not sorted from what you would probably expect was that you would see it. You would see your email inbox. So you would see the most recent email at the very top. And then as you scroll down, you go back in time. So then that's helpful because you can see, oh, this came in before that. So that gives me a cut. If you got an email, you know, about some project and it's really absurd to try and imagine if someone made an inbox, an email inbox that worked like the Twitter feed did. So instead of seeing emails as they came in, you were waiting for a certain email to come and follow up to a previous one. You would instead maybe get some email from three days ago that said, Oh my God, that, that gives me anxiety. <laughs> I mean, just thinking about it. And I think it, it's a really good point that shows that how for mission critical things, nobody would tolerate this. And, right. and the other thing with the temporal thing is she does talk at one point about LinkedIn as a poster child for, I, I can't remember the exact words, but it's, it's trying to get you to do all these things like to, to engage with it. And mm-hmm. I think it has all these these different patterns that sort of, one of them is temporal because it says something like, I think I've noticed this too on LinkedIn when you get notifications, the sometimes they don't all come in at once. So you would see like bell on the bottom, in the bottom like taskbar that has like a badge. It has like the number two on it. You, know, you have two unread notifications. You click on that. You know, okay, yeah, so I'm clear on that. You go back to the homepage and all of a sudden the message, uh, badge there's a badge lights up over the message icon so then you have a new message but it actually didn't come that second it actually came quite a while ago and so i'm looking at mine right now and i have three messages all from like january 13 and like i have checked these since then but you're getting me yeah i she does talk about the the design of these kinds of platforms and how the yeah. notification icon is red and blaring. So yeah, there's want to look at it. There's a table on page 115 where she calls them. I don't think it's her words. She's using the people who did this study persuasive design techniques. And so yeah. there's like notification badges, the red coloration, the the numeral on the notification badge, the sort of intermittent delivery. And then the, the textual ad that seems like it says ready for a change or something where it seems like it's something organic, but it is not. It's just some paid placement. And I get those a lot too. And like a lot of times when you get notifications on LinkedIn, they're absolutely nothing. They're just like somebody had to cross the milestone of the company or, mm-hmm. uh, or it's some recruiter or not even a recruiter. It's an in-mail for some opportunity that is not even a job. It's just some something of like marketing maybe. 
So a lot of times these notifications have nothing at all to do with you personally. Like nobody's actually interacting with you, but they're just there to suck you in in a way. All of my messages are either sponsored or labeled as LinkedIn offer. <laughs> LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, yeah, that... we, we could do a whole hour about LinkedIn. This is such a busy platform. Yeah. Um, yeah. LinkedIn is really, it's really extreme in terms of how it tries to grab your attention. And I, and my only thought there is that it has to be, because otherwise it's just so boring. It, the, un, <laughs> the underlying, I think I, yeah. I told somebody once that you, you could imagine like the two poles of extremes. You could have one, one extreme, you have Twitter, where I would say Twitter is almost natively ironic because a lot of times you can just post things and just, they can sound incredibly silly, but then people will get what you're saying or something like that. You can reference some old tweet that was, that went viral and was funny and do your own sort of spin on it. And people will immediately grasp what you're going for and like it. Whereas LinkedIn is the exact opposite. LinkedIn is a, what I would call a irony free zone because you can't post anything there. That's you have to seem earnest, even though, a lot of times it's really, I mean, it's pretentious though. Like people are talking, you know, they have the classic LinkedIn posts is some, you scroll through and you see something like, I thought I didn't know what it took to run a company. And then you think that's the whole post, but then you expand it and it's a couple of hundred words long. <laughs> they keep going oh, through yeah. all these stories, there's bullet points. And so there's like a whole little industry there of like how to have LinkedIn posts. But, but you know, really, even though she doesn't get into that later in, until, doesn't get into LinkedIn in particular until later. And really LinkedIn is not focus of the book it is a microcosm of what she calls the attention economy so like on page 14 she had talked about how i think it was currently i see a similar battle playing out for our time the colonization of the self by capitalist ideas of productivity and efficiency so then it's so these the idea of being productive of being efficient it's with going on facebook or going on linkedin i guess we feel like we get we're getting something done but I don't know. I don't really feel accomplished after I do that. But anyway, it, it's so it's, there's these platforms that take away a lot of our time to do anything, really, which I guess is is ironic because like she had talked about, you know, there is this sort of idea that everything has to be productive, everything, everything has to be efficient. But then when she's what she's proposing and the title is not really literal, like how to do nothing. It's more like how to do things that are not necessarily they don't have to be commercial. They don't have to be like have some obvious goal to them they don't have you don't have to you can do she even says that sort of diverting your attention away from like facebook or twitter or like the this online attention economy is in a way sort of an act of civil disobedience because it's and she contextualizes a lot of this with you're talking about how the economy has gotten a little more precarious over time for people they don't have as much they don't have as much leeway or as much just time to do things outside of work and then the time they do have is often monopolized by this context-free social media stream. And then with things like TikTok, it's really taken to really an- another level because oh, yeah. TikTok, you can just infinitely scroll through videos all day and see things. That Forever. Really, <laughs> really, yeah. And really the context collapse on TikTok is even worse because there's so many filters. So a lot of times what you're seeing is not really what is really there at all. So I, I have several things to say about this as I am an, an, a consumer of TikTok. Yeah. But I, she wrote this in 2018 and I published it in 2019. And I thought she didn't mention TikTok at all in this book. So like, she's got to have something. She's got to have some opinions about it. Yeah. And so she did. She wrote a piece for 
the New York Times at the end of 2019, August, because it was published August 31, 2019. And it's called, Can We Slow Down Time in the Age of TikTok? And it, it is a lament about how, especially her young you know, college age students, because I guess she, she teaches art yeah. at the con- Stanford. At Stanford. Mm. She lamenting about how the TikTok and Instagram and like kind of this, she, let's see, a punishing Adderall fueled version of her teenage years. It might be difficult for them to slow down for a class where I have them make painstaking collages, go on walking tours, so that they have all these worries. Time is precious. Time is money. And it's really interesting. She's still on this. We need to go take a walk. Go take a walk in the woods and look at some birds and take some deep breaths real quick. (laughs) Yeah. But I think a lot of, like, the first half of this book, I... Maybe not the first half. Maybe the first... 20% or so where she talks a lot about 60s movement 60s and 70s of like commune living and trying to create like utopian communities outside of capitalism and outside of whatever the economy that we have now and all I could think was that it's a really privileged position that she is trying to promote yeah of not of being like having that level of privilege to not have to go to work Mm -hmm. three jobs and and she has time to go sit in the rose garden and think about her blah blah blah. but she does she does acknowledge that yeah she's she she is self-aware of that yeah so yeah yeah i was when she acknowledged that in in the book i felt a little bit better i guess about it (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, the first half is really is more oriented towards sort of ways to escape from being lost in the online world in a way because the attention economy, she doesn't actually ever, I don't think she ever actually defines what it is. It's It seems pretty obvious that the way, I mean, that what she's implying about it, that it's like we built this whole economy around monopolizing your time through these centralized platforms that sort of keep you in a sort of addled, anxious state. They monetize that, that anxiety and also there's conduits for conformity. Of course, they are centralized. Somebody's controlling them on the other end. They keep us atomized because instead of going out into physical spaces, we spend all this time online in this sort of online space. And so we don't really get these sort of interactions with other people, which are or even with non-people. She's, the world. The she world. spends a lot of time talking about trees. And birds, yeah. And so we don't get that those sort of interactions. So those drain us in some way. So we can't do, we don't really live where we're meant to live. And we don't, and then we lack the ability to do, what do you call it, having collective action because we're just all in our own little worlds. And we're not even, we don't really, we don't have, we're not sharing space. We're not sharing these sort of experiences that we would, be able to share probably more easily if our attention wasn't wasn't just magnetized to this money making machine, uh, not just Facebook but Google, even the entire like SEO Gosh, uh, yeah, article economy. But uh, she one thing that I think that she went early on she talks about how this is something that's been going on for a while, but then she cites the 2016 election mm-hmm. as a key break point for her, and I totally agree with her on that because oh, yeah, uh, totally. because for me like I, I think I my consumption of like. Twitter in particular just skyrocketed after the 2016 election because I was always on there looking for, have they found the one weird trick to remove Donald <laughs> Trump from office yet or, or tracking every horrible event to see if it was actually less bad than I thought, which a lot of times you can get disappointed by that. And so I think on page, it's not a lot of yeah, times. 
it's yeah. all the times. <laughs> yeah, so I think she sums it up. She says the, this constant connection and the difficulty of maintaining any, any kind of silence or interiority is already a problem. But after the 2016 election, it seemed to take on new dimensions. I was seeing that the means by which we give over our hours and days are the same with which we assault ourselves with information and misinformation at a frankly inhuman rate. Obviously, mm-hmm. the solution is not to stop reading the news or even what other people have to say about that news. But we couldn't use a moment to examine the relationship between attention span and the speed of information exchange. And so later on, she actually, so if you're talking about social media in particular, which she doesn't always talk about that. She does, like we said, she spends a lot of time talking about her own experiences trying to get away from the online world. Yeah, I don't, um, she doesn't spend she doesn't spend a lot of time talking about social media. I think that's just like the context that, yeah. that I understand the most. Yeah, she does. So later on, she she does try to summarize what she thinks is really problematic about it. And so one of the things is, first of all, that it's you get this information overload that's impossible to keep up with. So you can't really um, it, it, that makes it more difficult to see and to comprehend things because there's just too much to keep track of. So you, and she actually quotes from I think it's a translated quote from a Spanish ecological group that says that everybody says that there's no censorship on the Internet or at least only in part, but that's not true. Online censorship is applied to the excessive banal content that distracts people from serious or collective issues. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really one thing that she's, and that's actually a pretty good a summary of a lot of what she's talking about, because you can't, you can't, you can't solve any collective action problems. And she actually goes and traces some various collective action taken, collective actions taken throughout history, such as I think the Montgomery boy, bus boycott and some of the actions from the civil rights movement and like a, a longshoreman strike from the 1930s and how all of these were incredibly dependent upon people in real life. And you're going to these sort of spaces where each space had its own function. Like I'm meeting somebody in a union hall in this space, I'll use this sort of mode of speech and I'll cover these topics. But if I meet somebody in their house, I might have a slightly different approach. So you have these sort of different contexts that are all sort of bounded by space and that makes it easy for people to know what context they're working within what they need to say how they need to approach each person whereas if it's online it's a little more it's a little more difficult because so the second she'll following up on that thing about instantaneous communication she says that the immediacy of social media closes down the time needed quote-unquote political elaboration because the content that activist Sherilyn has to be quote-unquote catchy Activists do not have the space and time to articulate their political reflections. So it's this is really an issue, not just uh, in politics, but really in all of online content, because I have to make this somehow really appealing, interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but then, so that sort of narrows, that immediately narrows what I can do with it. So instead of being able to dive deep into something and go on some tangent instead i have to somehow couch it in the language of i mean extreme example is what time is the super bowl as the lead into every article in like february but uh, they have something like top 10 the catchiest something or other the top top 10 reasons you know to do a protest at such and such you, convention. Yeah. you know what this makes me think of in a really reductive kind of way greta thunberg taking andrew tate to task about his oh yeah small dick energy or whatever she said oh, yeah yeah that kind of it generated it it generated yeah. a lot of things, but one of the things was like actual media attention on this guy that I I had not seen previous to that. Yeah. She's using sensationalist language and basically just <laughs> making fun yeah. of him on a large platform on the internet. And like that is 
interesting to people. Yeah. And then yeah. I, me personally, yeah. I learned more about him than I had previously. Yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's because a lot of people who wouldn't have known anything about Greta Thunberg's other actions, they knew her because of that. But then right. at the same time, that is one of the most liked tweets of all time. I don't, yeah. know, if, I don't know if it's the most, but it's, but then at the same time, it actually goes right into the third point about social media that is in, that's later in the book about <clears throat> how this immediacy of the online world creates, it relies a lot on what's called, what are called weak ties. So mm-hmm. it's like the new people you meet through social media, like even, especially as a group is based on a common reaction or emotion and not on a shared political project. So it's like, you can get like a lot of likes or engagement on something on Twitter or that you post, but that doesn't really translate in any way into action because a lot of those people, they might just think it's it, the, the way you said it sounded cool or something. And then, so it's, and I think another thing that she had taught, she had brought up was that I think it was that some of these people, like the most successful Twitter accounts, like had lost track of who their audiences even were. So it's like they were, they had gotten to some point and then they were just posting things. They didn't know who it was for, but it was just getting all kinds of engagement. Yeah. And I did think about how, like, with when I was writing for Content Mill, first of all, of course, I did have to do that thing with making everything catchy somehow instantly. I don't know, like a, like some kind of hook to it. And there was no room for really any sort of nuance or long lasting engagement. And then a lot of times I didn't know who I was writing for anyway. Even though we were often told, oh, this is for a, like a small business audience or this is for a, an, an IT admin. Having not really interacted with a lot of those people in real life, it was difficult for me to know exactly what they would want me to write about. So, oh. and it was, had that sensation similar to posting on Twitter where it's just, hey, here's something I'm throwing into the void. Maybe it'll take off. Like at one time, literally, I wrote some really dumb post about like how someone had replace the yard sign for one mayoral candidate in Chicago with another another candidate's sign. And then I'd said I'd done some variant of the part from Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum's character says that life finds a way or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then this got this retweeted by an alderman. And then, oh my gosh. Uh, and then it got 70-something likes, which, so just a good, I had no idea who that tweet was even for. It wasn't really for anybody. It was just some an observation that I'd made. And then, of course, all those people who liked it, many of them, I don't know if any of them even followed me. So it's a good example of like how that weak, those weak tie formations. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's. So a lot yeah. of, I'm trying to think about how to articulate this because she talks about social media as having this kind of pressure. I'm trying to think. So she says at some point, so she didn't, she doesn't feel like she owes anyone anything on social media like the argument of who wants to know about how i spent my morning or whatever right. and my my mom even she once said to me like who cares what kind of sandwich i had for lunch today and <laughs> of course my response is like mom you don't have to post about your sandwich yeah. it's not right it's not but at, at first that made me think that odell's like i guess interaction with twitter was like a little out of touch but then i kept thinking about it and Honestly, it feels like she's saying that the pressure to post and the societal kind of anxiety that is induced just by the platform's existence is what is difficult, right? And we don't really clock that that pressure is happening to us consciously, but we still feel that pressure. Yeah. And even like my mom, who has never logged into Twitter in her entire life, like 
notices that is what is expected. Yeah. On a weird way. Weird yeah. Level. Yeah. It's, she does. So like one of her things that she critiques about social media is that early on, but she says, that, is it like after the, the election, 2016 election has happened and there's all this torrent of negative information, misinformation. And she says that <clears throat> what was missing from that surreal and terrifying torrent of information, virtuality, was any regard, any place for the human animal situated as she is in time and in physical environment, in, in a physical environment with other human and non-human entities. It turns out that groundedness requires actual ground. So yeah, this is anybody yeah. who's struggled with anxiety. One of the things that sometimes you might get told is that it's always good to try and focus on something physical that you can actually, you know, you can actually sense because once you lose yourself in thought, something that's immaterial that is not even close to you, you can really just spiral out of control. And it is because you think about the digital world and social media is just one part of it. It it fancies itself as being infinite, even though it's really not because I mean, it, it depends on real physical resources. At some point, you know, the, the, all the hard disks that are holding all this information. Now, Alex, you can't give <laughs> us a definition of the cloud in the middle of our- so What is it? The cloud is just someone else's computer. It's my favorite. Yeah. There's someone at work who has that. It's like a sticker up in there. Yeah, so it's, yeah, exactly. The cloud is just someone else's computer. But then this idea that it's just infinite, that's just, it's too overwhelming to think about. And so you can just, you can literally, you can just go off the rails you're thinking, iterating on thoughts like this happened. Now, what if this happens? Let me just look that up real quick. And then you find that you're on another rabbit hole. And so you can quickly lose yourself. You're, you lose your sense of place or time by being, quote unquote, extremely online because these places don't have rooms or different contexts. You have to exert any effort to move between. So it all just basically seems like it's coming from the same place. You often see people will say that Teenage girls in particular, like their their rates of depression have mm-hmm. gone up because of like smartphones. Some people debate that and say, actually, it's something different. But literally having all of the world's digital information in front of your face and being able to just completely go through it and have no, you can just do it all day. And you don't have, you don't have to switch, you don't have to context switch, you don't have to move between places. And so you can really, you can lose yourself and there are mental consequences to that. And it's... She had right. said, yeah. And at the same time, like you are metabolizing that information. You, right. Maybe you don't consciously know that you see, I mean, speaking of your your teenage girls example, right? Like you, you don't consciously think, oh, that woman is the whatever American beauty standard ideal. But if enough of your feed looks like that and you don't look like that yeah your brain takes in this information especially young people whose brains are still trying to figure themselves out and trying to form and yeah absolutely absolutely it's um it's really the thing that you said about um grounding our what you said and what odell said about it's important to ground yourself in the physical world yeah i remember the very first time i ever had a panic attack in a public place it wasn't like anything too intense but I was on the red line, Chicago. Yeah. And I texted my friend and I was like, I'm having a real hard time. <laughs> Please, I know that you've dealt with this. It was one of those help me moments. And right. she said, count the screws in the floorboard of the train. And I did. And it helped, right? Like you're grounding yourself in the physicality of the place yeah. where you are currently right now. 
um, and trying to focus on that. Like right. I said, the physical realm yeah. was helpful in having, trying to get rid of these spiraling thoughts. Yeah. I think there's, yeah, it definitely helps because it, it takes your, it, it replaces something abstract with something concrete because mm-hmm. the idea that something is just happening, but then you can't see it. And then thus you really can't do a lot about it. And but I think know. a lot of uh, online, I don't want to call it discourse, but like when people talk are about being chronically online, like the thing that people will, will say is you need to log off. Yeah, you need you to, need, log you off, need to yeah. go touch grass. Yeah, like literally it. they'll say touch grass. <clears throat> and it's meant to be dismissive coming from that perspective. <laughs> yeah. But like literally that's what you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. And that's at least what she's saying here, right? Yeah. Recontextualize what you are doing and maybe don't be online so much. Don't be online so much, yeah. Because I think early on she says something like, as the body disappears, so does our ability to empathize. If you don't have these sort of, if you're not really connected to your senses, you lose sort of your ability to empathize with other people. And Mm. you also, I mean... And then like you were saying in your example, you do lose that ability. You lose yourself in thought and your brain is becomes like a thinking machine. And then you, yeah, I mean, it's the, the, the physicality thing. And the other thing too about how that helps is I think there's something else too about, and she doesn't really take this on directly. She does. She, when she says something like uh, that, really the, the boundary between the self and the outside world is arbitrary and that's mm. and that really we should see ourselves as continuous with the outside world rather than discreet from it was this it, where she talked about the i thou and the i oh yeah the i thou and that that's actually a, a, the i it and i thou so like if you approach something whether it's another person or an object as an i it it's sort of like that thing is something that is instrumental to you so it's how can you use that to get it for your own purposes and it's outside of you right? <laughs> yeah it's separate entirely from yeah whatever you are yeah so it's you see it instrumental but then if you see it as i thou it's like you're instead appreciating it as just something that is its own thing that is as she says out there and so it's it has its own distinctive existence and it's not something that is that has to be appreciated as something that's instrumental to you as something like, I can use this to get a job or I can use this to, if it's a tree, I can use this for wood or something. And even her early, one of her earliest examples or her, one of her earliest anecdotes in the book is about you know, that useless tree in Oakland or something and how it was, Old it, Sentinel. yeah, it was not good for, it was too weird to be cut, to, to be used as wood. And it actually has survived in part because it's so useless. And it's a good, it's a good look at how one of her big things, not everything has to be immediately practical. It doesn't have to have some kind of, it doesn't have to be like a cog in the efficiency machine. So when she talked about that wood I, and the, the I thou thing, I thought was really good because it does the, sort of the opportunity to appreciate things on their own terms as other beings instead of trying to see them as well as tools or something that can be optimized to some end right. so used to our advantage our yeah. advantage of what to yeah. what yeah i think i I'd actually this is connected to a blog that i'd recently read which i'll put in the show notes and it was called the uh, actually i found this blog to be somewhat similar to this book its topic was neoliberalism trying to summarize what neoliberalism meant and really, this blog is, is a very succinct alternative to this book. But he is Adam Kotzko, who's a he's a Chicago area academic, and actually he follows me on Twitter, which is probably my proudest Twitter follow, other than you, of course. But and then it's a 
But he he talks about how neoliberalism, which is a term that a lot of people use, but a lot of people who are like contrarians say it doesn't mean anything. But it's pretty easy to define it. It's basically you've applied the market logic of a market to everything. So it's yeah. like we have to open up retirement funds to the market. 401k is a good example. Or we have to use a market-based solution for healthcare, you know, like the Obamacare exchanges. And then, and then, and of course, this is bad in a lot of ways. But one of the ways he, he talks about how it's bad is that you can't, it's it infects your decisions in ways you really don't even think about. So I think he talks about how it's something like, so early on, he goes on, sets the stage and talks about how, yeah, how neoliberalism came to be and so on. But then he talks about how something like the other day I was meeting with a major in our program, a very strong student who had, I had not had in class before. We wound up talking for a good half hour. And at a certain point, the thought slipped into my head that it was a good thing I was doing this and making her feel so supported because we really need majors. A very rewarding part of my job, which I was doing for its own sake and even enjoying, suddenly felt like a cynical manipulation because like he, all he can think about is like how it's actually, it's good for the department. It's economically good instead of, but he wasn't really meaning to approach it that way. And he says, once a faculty discussion about providing mentoring and support for students of color devolved into a reflection on the importance of reaching Latinx students for our bottom line, <laughs> a question of justice becomes a question of finances. No one intended for that to happen. It just rolls right off our tongues. Yeah. And this is, we are all well-versed in defending our disciplines in market terms. The humanities provide valuable job skills. Employers tell us they want liberal arts majors who can think on their feet. Liberal arts majors eventually catch up to and even exceed the incomes of their STEM counterparts. I understand that such rhetoric is tactically necessary, especially in a media sphere full of information about the value of different fields of study. I also happen to think these things are true, but even though it's true, it's harmful to frame the value of education in such narrowly instrumental terms. And I think that actually is a good summary of the entire Dell book. It's harmful to frame the value, and you can just take out education and put anything you want in there. In such okay. narrowly instrumental terms. Oh, that, yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. This, yeah. I think this blog really, maybe, it helped me understand the book a little more. Like, he, he and then his next sentence is, I did not get into this line of work so that Johnny can get that big promotion years down the road, <laughs> or Susie can contribute to better quarterly results for her department. But, of course, Johnny and Susie need to be able to get those employment outcomes, right. or else they aren't going to, be able to pay off the student loans that are financing their education there. So, he realizes that sort of that there's a trap here. He wishes there's all this pressure to conform to this market logic or what Odell calls the attention economy. But you could, it's it, it's worth trying to look at it in some other way other than just this is all instrumental. This is a transaction. I can use, yeah, <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I we used to work for the content mill and we contributed yeah. to society backwards. We <laughs> <laughs> took from society. <laughs> yeah, but the thing that I like about the current job that I have that I do. I work I do work in higher education, much like your blog friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the thing that I enjoy about what I do is that I feel like I'm contributing to the general level of education in society, right? Yeah. Like having a more educated society is good. But I think sometimes we get lost in this. We want students to have a good education so they get a good job. And that is the end all be all of whatever we're doing here. But what Odell is saying and what you're what you're saying is that that shouldn't be the bottom line. The bottom line should be that we are forming more educated and better formed communities of people yeah. that can interact in in, in more right. productive not productive and as in the capitalist sense of product, productivity but like 
productive as in productive for each other. Yeah, that, I think that's actually a really good summary. I think of her entire logic with this book is that we're trying to make, we're trying to just, there's something more out there than just optimizing everybody as much money as possible and make other people who are already rich, even richer. And it, we can make it, like you said, productive for each other. And productive maybe is not the best word there because it still has that link to yeah, know, Madrid. I, I know what you mean. And just the vocabulary a, is, has been ingrained in me. <laughs> yeah. Just as a sidebar here, I might, I only have about 10 minutes or so left, but I think okay. we've covered some good points and I have a few more we can go over pretty quickly. But I think what you just said, though, is really good in tying up all the ends of the book and of how there is something else out there. And she had talked about how at Stanford, I think, or I think it was the Stanford ducking or something about how, you know, people were just pulling all night or staying up. Yeah. yeah. And I think on page 89, she said, every minute counts towards the goal of gainful employment. And that really is the, that really is true. I'll just say that there are sort of two narratives in this book that I think is sometimes she doesn't quite reconcile all the way. Like one of them is that we're always striving to be gainfully employed, but at the same time, we're wasting all this time on like We could maybe at some point revisit that in a future episode, but I think there's something that could be explored there. But one thing is that with, when you have all the stress about trying to get a job or trying to be employed, you, it's very, it's very mentally, um, it's very mental, it's very stressful on your mind because you can't concentrate because there's too many things that are grabbing your attention. Maybe if I did this instead of that, that would give me a better chance to uh, you get a leg up on my college application. Or, or if I just spent a little more time researching this paper, maybe that would get it even a higher grade. And then, you know, yeah, I don't know. And I think that's part <laughs> of the problem, right? Like the same thing that I was saying about how social media, like the very existence of these platforms puts this kind of subconscious pressure on people yeah like the idea i don't know that's what you just said made me nervous yeah because because you're thinking about (laughs) xyz of all the things yeah i had had so many conversations about linkedin today i just it's and and people just accept it yeah they accept they just this is they just accept it whatever yeah and another thing too is that when you see the whole world in this sort of extremely utilitarian terms you also lose a lot of awareness of things that people have put a lot of effort into and that might enrich your life so i think later on she talks about barnett newman the who was a he was an abstract painter abstract expressionist he taught some actually used some of his paintings in a class i taught in 2010 but uh, she talks about how and this is linked to the I thou thing. Like with these abstract works, like this Newman painting she mentions, it's like the painting just represents itself and it doesn't have to represent something else, like a, like a, be, to be like representational. So what then. What does the color mean? Yeah, what no is the color? Like, and it's like you can, by appreciating it as a painting in itself, you can recognize that you are, you, you are doing a conscious act of looking at it. It's not just something that is thrown in front of you, which is like social media. Like it's just like, here's a bunch of stuff you didn't ask for. And then, but it's like, it's right there and you're conscious of the fact that you're engaging with it. And I think that's one reason why, you know, a lot of reactionaries really hate abstract art is because it does require quite a bit of effort and awareness of the world. And they'd rather you just not be aware of that world, that you would not have that faculty. You would not be aware that you were exerting some kind of mental attention there right. and then she also talks about like that john cage 
Of course, John Cage is most famous for 433, the piece where uh, the pianist sits down, opens the piano, plays oh nothing, gosh. and then closes it. That whole se- we could spend an hour talking <laughs> about that section of the oh, piece. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. I thought it's so good because it makes you realize, because no performance of 433 is the same, because every time, yeah, there's some different ambient noise. And that's the point, right? The point is that the ambient... The performance, and it's stuff that you would have never even thought to pay any attention to before. So it's uh, Because of the awkward silence, you are yeah, paying attention to. And it's true. And then, or there's all kinds of things things like that you have not even thought to engage with that once you do engage with it you can't help it but uh, to see it everywhere i think she calls like it opens the gate of consciousness so i thought that was pretty good as well i have plenty of examples that i've thought of like along these lines even things like people's hair patterns how much hair they've lost what grade are they on the norwood scale and stuff like that so it's like <laughs> you would never even but then once you start getting to those woods it's like every time your attention goes to somebody's Hey, and you always think well, this person's a Norwood three, and maybe they'll progress to a Norwood four or something. <laughs> and uh, but then the and I'm really sorry to have to oh, it's shorten okay. time. Maybe but, we could do a two parter. Yeah, I, mean, I think there, we could. I think we should do it. More... I think we should do a two parter on this. But I'll close. The last thing I wanted to talk about was just the the David Foster Wallace speech. <gasps> so let's talk about that. Yeah, just real quickly. This is water was the name of the retroactively given to the commencement speech that David Foster Wallace, American author gave at Kenyon College in 2005. And this speech really is like in the pantheon of like commencement speeches, like with Steve Jobs's Stay Hungry, Stay Foolish speech and some other ones. So it's, it is probably the piece of writing that most people, I would say it might be his most read piece of writing because first of all, it's by far the shortest book he ever wrote. It's short. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but anyway, it's, I won't, I'll just link it in the show notes. It's a very, um, aspirational type of piece so you can live a better life if you just if you really you are aware of what you're doing the title this is water is about how like a fish is in water and it doesn't really realize it's in water because why would a fish know what water is it's just that's what it's always in so it maybe wouldn't be conscious of the fact that water is a discrete thing then um <laughs> what so the speech is like you can choose to see the world in a sort of negative way or you can be a little more conscious of what's going on maybe it's not all about what you're doing, you have to see, think about the context of these other people are living in, what they're going through, and so on. So it's a very positive piece of writing. But uh, and of course, she dovetails very well with Odell's argument how you have to be aware, you have to concentrate your attention. I've always thought this was a weird speech for a couple of reasons, and the first one is that it's actually based on what the, it's referential the, to infinite jest. It's referential to infinite jest, and the context there is that one of the main characters, Don Gately, is like hanging out at, at, at Alcoholics Anonymous with some bikers. And one of the bikers wants him to, he said, Bob Death smiles coolly and manipulates a wooden match with his lip and says, no, not that fish one. He has to assume a kind of bar shout to clear the noise of his idling hog. He leans in more <laughs> towards Gately and shouts that the one he was talking about was the, this wise old whiskery fish swims up to the three young fish and goes, morning boys, how's the water? And swims away. And the three young fish watch him swim away and look at each other and go, what the fuck is water? <laughs> so... <laughs> That's, it's pretty surprising that. Oh, the, okay. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But from that somehow came this Funny. aspirational speech. And also, I've always thought it was weird to take life advice from, you know, severe depressives who killed themselves. David Foster. Yeah. And then because somebody one time on Twitter said, oh, I've always loved Anthony Bourdain's advice on how to make yourself Ugh. feel better. And someone was like, I don't know if I should say it, but you know, Anthony, yeah, but, but anyway, <laughs> and. But yeah, on that happy note, we just read Mark Fisher's <laughs> capitalism book too. Yeah, right? no, we've really Oof. cornered the market here on getting oh. advice from people who who uh, didn't take it. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, anyway, so I, I think next yeah. time I want to talk about just how poetic the book is. Yeah, I think I, 
Yeah, like, for it sure. It dovetails really nicely into something that I've been meaning to talk about, which is my favorite book of all time. Oh. Which is called How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Oh, cool. Wipe, wipe, um, yeah. Yeah, so we should do that part two of our yeah. Jenny O'Dell book. Episode. Yeah, I have a whole keynote deck dug out here, and I think I've only gotten through about four of the slides. So awesome. uh, there's plenty awesome. we can still go through. But yeah, I think Very this was cool. good. We have a pretty solid hour of material here. Yeah. Yeah, I'll uh, edit this up and then post it at some point. And then I'll, of course, um, I might be able. We've already said there's going to be a part two. But in case you're wondering about that, there will be a part two. So this is part one. So Yes, this uh, is part one. There will be a part two. Look uh, out for that. Yeah. I wanted to say just like, two things really quick. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure. Make sure to subscribe to Alex's. Yeah. It is two solid, T-O, solid dot substack.com. Yeah. And my debut fantasy novel is yeah. out now. It's called Blood Made. You can find it on my website at lizmakestuff.com. Yeah, I'm excited to read that. So I've got that. It came the other day. So it's nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll put, yeah, as always, those links will be in the show notes along with you know, the things we talked about. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah. Look for part two. Thanks for listening.